This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Every single generation is going to face its issues, but the defining issue of our generation is the health of our planet. It's unlike anything we've ever faced before. It is, as the Secretary General of the United Nations said, an existential threat to life on Earth, period. This week, my guest is the endurance swimmer, ocean advocate, and trustee of the Lewis Pugh Foundation, Lewis Pugh himself. Lewis has completed a long-distance swim in every ocean of the world, and yes, you heard that correctly, every ocean of the world. He does this to ensure environmental justice for our oceans. In this episode, you won't be able to see it, but my jaw dropped several times hearing about the swims he's done. Lewis was extremely honest about the fear he feels before these swims, but also the motivation and inspiration that keeps him going. And you'll hear a very interesting fact about what his body is capable of doing to prepare him for the cold water. Here's our conversation. Lewis, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm just so excited to speak with you today, a fellow South African. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) So I'm going to start. My mom says that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person, and you have an insane resume, but what would you say is missing from it that people should know about you? Mm, it's a good question. I, I learned how to swim when I was 17 years old. And for, for swimmers, that's very late in life. So you think of the great swimmers like Phelps and Thorpe and these type of guys, they would have been swimming at four and then they'd have been winning, winning Olympic medals by the time they're, at least by the time they're 20 and then retiring uh, when they're around about 30. Uh, so I only properly started when I was 17 and I didn't have good style lessons when I was young. Mm. And so my stroke is pretty sloppy. And so now at 51 years old, I've gone back to school to learn how to swim properly. Um, I'd say that's the first thing. So I've been swimming now for 35 years. I think the second thing, and I love it, to go back and now be taught by, I'm being taught by a guy who's just turned 30 years old and he's saying, no, Lewis, I need your arm up higher. Okay, stretch further, Lewis, stretch further. And I'm telling him, I'm stretching as far as I can. But it's lovely to be learning at 50 years old, 51 years Mm -hmm. old. I think the second thing is that people say, oh, Lewis, you've got some type of superpower. You can swim in cold water like other people can't. Uh, That's not true. Uh, It has been years of training in extremely cold water. The reason why I can withstand cold water is because I've spent longer in cold water than anyone else. Um, And it's, uh, I do it for my safety. Uh, So I spend time in the cold so that I can uh, withstand the cold but it's never pleasant being in really cold water. I think a lot of people think that I enjoy being in cold water. No, (laughs) couldn't be further from the truth. I I swim in these insane places to carry a message about what's happening in these places. Right. Well, we're going to talk about this message and and you're swimming. But now my mind is blown that you started at 17 because I was going to, you know, I was going to say you're the first person to complete a long distance swim in every ocean of the world. And I was going to ask, when did you first start swimming? What made you start? And I'm assuming you're going to be like, oh, I was thrown in the water at two, two years old and just been going since then. No, n- not, not the case. But, 
But what I would say is that I grew up in Plymouth. So my father was a doctor in the Navy and we moved between Plymouth and Portsmouth, two big naval cities in Britain. When I was uh, 16, we, so when I was 10, we moved out to South Africa. Initially, we lived in Grahamstown, which is you know, some distance away from the coastline. And then at, at 17, we moved to Cape Town. And what I remember most about it, I went to Camps Bay High School. Mm. And, and uh, it's a school with perhaps the most beautiful view in the world because the view goes down onto Camps Bay Beach. But if you, if you go to the history classroom, and you looked from the corner of the history classroom, in the corner, I could see Robben Island. And as a young boy, I used to look outside that classroom window and I used to think, I, I, and I don't even know where the thought came from. I think, think perhaps it's growing up in Plymouth. You know, mm -hmm. Plymouth is a, a, a city of pioneers. All the major explorers from Great Britain, almost all of them, bar one or two, all of them came from Plymouth. If you grow up in Plymouth, you're looking over the horizon. And I used to look outside that. Uh, I remember as a young boy in England, I, I lived, lived near Plymouth in a little valley. And I remember looking out across the valley and I used to think, oh, that must be France. And, then, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and it was just the other side of the Tamar Valley. And then when I came to Cape Town, I was looking across to Robben Island and thinking, I want to get there. And then when I'd swum Robben Island, no, 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 now I want to swimming Antarctica. I was always looking over, no. the, over the horizon. Mm. I mean, well, I went to St. Cyprian's and they had a pretty nice view of Table Mountain, but and you I didn't think Camps Bay Beach would be, would be lovelier. It's a lovely beach. It really is a lovely beach. And it's interesting that, you know, because Camps Bay is beautiful, but the water's cold, a lot of the really great cold water swimmers in the world come from Cape Town. They come from mm. South Africa because we've got so much, so much cold water to train in. Well, okay. So you, you know, when we talked about your resume, you said why you swim a little bit, but could you give us more, you know, you said sort of carrying a message. And I know that with you, there's this term that people talk about speedo diplomacy. Yes. So could you tell my listeners a bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so this is a, a, I don't know, a phrase which the media have grabbed uh, they, they describe me as a speedo diplomat. Uh, I think for two reasons. The first one is that I just swim in a speedo swimming costume, uh, which is just a, a pair of briefs. So even when I'm swimming in the Arctic or the Antarctic, where the water can be really cold. So when I swim across... You the don't North say. <laughs> so when the, when the water of the North Pole, when I swam across the North Pole, was, was minus 1.7 degrees centigrade, just below freezing. It's unbelievably cold. And I swim just in a speedo. And I swim in a speedo for a number of different reasons. The main one being is I'm urging world leaders to be courageous, to make the mm. tough decisions. And I never felt that swimming in a wetsuit or dry suit sent, sent the right message. The, the other reason why, why, you know, it's called speedo diplomacy is because of the diplomacy aspect. I'm trying to build bridges. I'm trying to get world leaders to understand that what they do in their country now because of, uh, you know, what, what happens in one country impacts every other country. So if you allow pollution to go down your rivers, it goes to the sea and then washes up on some, some other country's coastline. Mm. If, if you uh, 
have a massive great coal power station in your country is going to impact another country and the, and the citizens of another country and the animals of another country. So I talk about building bridges, working together. And that sort of led to me being described as a, as a, a speedo diplomat. <laughs> well, I mean, in addition to the speedo diplomat, you were also the first UN patron of the oceans in 2013, you were appointed. Do you think that as now a patron of the oceans, these leaders listen to you more? I hope, I hope so. Uh, yeah. So when the Secretary General appointed me as a, as a UN patron of the oceans, he said, Lewis, one task, please just be a voice for the oceans, be a voice for all the incredible wildlife in our oceans. You know, the whales, the dolphins, the polar bears, the penguins, all these magnificent animals. So, you know, they're not represented in Parliament. Yes, we have environment ministers and we have MPs who obviously some of them care about the environment, but you don't have a penguin speaking in the South African Parliament. <laughs> you don't have a polar bear speaking in, in Congress. You don't have a, you know, a leopard seal speaking in the House of Commons. They want me to do my level best to be a voice for those animals. We share this planet with the most magnificent wildlife you could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you stand close to a polar bear and you see it walk out across the ice, this is majesty. Or you go down to St. Andrew's Bay in South Georgia and you see all those king penguins come ashore and they've got their white chests and their gold bow ties and thousands and thousands of them coming in, having fed down in the Southern Ocean. And then they come in and they stand up and then they waddle ashore. They're magnificent, but they are now under threat. The polar bears are under threat. They're all under threat and we need to stand up. For me, this has always been an issue of justice, justice between ourselves and the animal kingdom. We need to protect the animal kingdom. Absolutely. Well, you know, I've watched some videos of some of your swims and it made me cold as I was watching it. Um, and because you have done a long distance swim in every ocean on earth, what would you say has been your hardest swim? Mm. I would say they've all been hard because one of the things I've always tried to, to do is that each swim, mm. so I, I only do a swim now if it's to carry a message. Okay. okay. No message, no swim. And necessarily if you're going to get media attention every single swim has got to be harder tougher colder more dangerous than the previous one otherwise the media just wouldn't 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 do it so for example right. uh two years ago i swam the full length of the english channel that's 528 kilometers now if i were to announce today that i'm going to swim robin island which is seven kilometers that the media would hardly cover that as a story but when I swam Robin Island as a young 17-year-old boy, seven kilometers was really, really hard. But, but I've been swimming now for 35 years. But if I had to choose one as the toughest, it would certainly have been yeah. English Channel. So about 2,000 people have swum across the English Channel. It's 32 kilometers from Dover to Calais. But that's the width. Nobody had done the length. And I did it two years ago. I dived in the sea at Land's End. And then 49 days later, I arrived in Dover and I was absolutely finished, finished. 
But the hardest things often lead to the best results. And as a direct result of that, the United Kingdom government committed to protecting 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. They, oh, made wow. that, they made that announcement a month later at the United Nations. They urged other nations to join, to join them. And since then, 75 nations have agreed to protect 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. It's turned into the largest conservation drive in history. And it all started because, you know, we were absolutely determined to protect the waters around the United Kingdom. And it led to this big global drive now, which is so incredibly exciting for us. That is amazing. Mm. I mean, so I also heard that you can raise your body temperature by two degrees Celsius in anticipation of swimming in the cold water. Is this true? It's true. It's true. It's true. I've spent so much time in cold. And you're the only human recorded to have done it. Yes, but what you need to understand, Mungi, is there are not many people swimming in cold because most people are normal. We, th- <laughs> we, think, we think it's like a Pavlovian response. So remember mm. the experiment by the Russian scientist with the dog and the bell? Well, I, as soon as I'm about to get into cold water, we notice that my core body temperature rises to 38.5, which is, which is really hot. And that allows me to spend longer in the water. And what they think it is, it's just my body deep down knows, Lewis, you're going to get cold. You better heat up those furnaces. That is like testament to our bodies really working for us. Oh, our bodies are really special. If you look at the full diversity of people, from people who live in Africa, who are the most magnificent runners in the world, to people in West Africa, who are huge and big and strong, to the people up the Inuits who live in in um, northern Canada who are so adapt to the cold. I think humans, the diversity of humans and the diversity of animals as well are beautiful. I suppose mm-hmm. I've just become specialized in handling damn cold places. Yeah. And spending time in the water. I love being at sea. It's not that I don't like being on land, but when I'm in the sea, I feel happy. Okay. Well, so then that's interesting because I was going to say, you know, obviously these swims are a test for your body. And I can't imagine the sort of like tough moments you have when you're doing the swim is what sort of keeps you going when you're like in the water and it's freezing cold and, you know, your limbs are starting to get tired. Mm. It's a good question. I, r- I wrote a blog recently about the 22 tips to swim across the English Channel. And one of the tips I said was, when things get really tough, so when your arms feel like lead, when you're cold, when you're hungry, when you're exhausted, when you feel like giving up, think of just one reason, just one reason to keep on going. It'll make all the difference. And so for me, uh, when I'm doing these swims, I have to really focus on that one reason. Now, it depends on the swim that I'm doing. Sometimes when I'm doing a really cold swim, I can't allow my mind to uh, deviate on nice dreams of what I'm trying to achieve. I need to focus entirely on that swim. I mean, I mean, water, which can kill me very, very easily, I need to focus. I need to make sure every single stroke is as good as it can possibly be. Mm. When I'm swimming for 49 days, I can start thinking about the debates which I'll be having with government ministers and the points that I want to try and, 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 and land. 
so things things are very different depending on on where I'm swimming depends on what I'm thinking mm. do you, do you have fear before these swims oh do, do, do I have fear Mungi. the last big swim I did was exactly this time last year so I went down to East Antarctica so okay. if you go from South Africa and you fly to Europe or to America and the plane takes off, you see all the planes heading north, don't you? They're all going to to London, to Frankfurt, to, to Paris and to, to New York, etc. If you go to Antarctica, you'll be the only plane heading south. No planes. No planes. And after one hour, you look outside the window and it's dark, black, Atlantic Ocean. After the second hour, it's still dark and black. After the third hour, you start seeing little speckles of white, and those are little icebergs. After the fourth hour, you see all the ice in the sea, and then eventually you'll see this massive great ice sheet. And then as far as you can see, that is the East Antarctic ice sheet. It's unbelievable. This is the biggest ice sheet in the world. And when the plane lands, Everywhere you will see these, what we call supraglacial lakes. So this mm. is melted water on top of the ice sheet. And this is really dangerous because what happens is that cracks appear in the ice. The water uh, drops down those cracks down to the bedrock, lubricates the bedrock and makes the ice sheet unstable. And so I went there a year ago to do a swim uh, down one of these rivers. And so the river went underneath the ice and then came out the other side. And I remember standing there just before I'm about to enter the tunnel. And do you realize that if things go wrong, you're the only one in that tunnel? Yeah. So the water is zero degrees. To my right, I've got ice. To the left, I've got ice. Ice underneath me and at least 100 meters of ice above me. And I'm going down this tunnel. And as I enter the tunnel... It was the most beautiful sight I have ever seen. It was this most incredible turquoise blue. And then it went into a dark, dark royal, rich blue. And then it went into an indigo and then a violet. And then it became so dark. I actually had to take my goggles off. And I was terrified in this tunnel. But it was so beautiful. I had to stop swimming. And I had to say to myself, Lewis... This place is so beautiful. You are the only person who's ever been in here and you will be the only person that will ever swim down this tunnel. Look, look at it. And I took the goggles off and I looked up and above me were these incredible, beautiful stalactites and I could see the light coming down a crack in the ice. And then, then the ice starts moving and when ice moves in a tunnel, the sound is like a cannon going off. Anyway, I just said to myself, okay, that's enough joy. <laughs> just keep on go, keep on going. And I swam towards the light at the end of the tunnel. I got out the other side and there was my team at the end. They grabbed me, the big Russian Slava Fetisov grabbed me at the end and he pulled me out. And it was, I had done the swim. But fear is a very real thing. And yeah. the only two ways that you can tackle fear that I've found. Number one, to be courageous Courage is a muscle, okay? You gotta, when you get to my age, you gotta keep pushing yourself into that place where it feels dangerous and it feels really uncomfortable. Because once you do that, then, you, then you're able to do these swims. But courage is a muscle. The second thing is, 
that courage is contagious. When you surround yourself by really courageous people, you can do almost anything. And so whenever I choose my team, I try to choose people who I think are incredibly brave. And that brings Mm -hmm. out the bravery in me and subdues the fear, which is very, very prevalent in me before I enter these, these very cold, dangerous places. I mean, my mind is just blown by this tunnel swim. So there's a picture that of the uh, the tunnel, Mungi. There, there is me about oh, to wow about to enter the tunnel, right? And all I'm thinking about there is, Lewis. If you don't do this, who else is going to? Who else is going to be able to draw attention to this incredible place? You better get Surely. in there now and get down that tunnel. And so I dive in. And here is the second picture. You can see, if you look at my fingertips there, you'll see that they're beginning to get frostbitten. I am so cold. But it's the most beautiful place I have ever been to. And and then, here's another picture of me swimming down this river, out the tunnel, down the river. And this is just the most beautiful place on the whole, whole planet. I got ice to the right, I got ice to the left. This water is this beautiful blue. And it's just heaven. And then finally at the end, the big Russian, Slava Fetisov, grabbing me, pulling me out the water, getting me warm again. How do, okay, so what do we do to warm you up? How long does it take? When you've been really, really cold, you never, ever warm up again, properly. Because deep down inside you, you remember it and you never, ever want to be there again, ever. Oh my goodness. So some of these swimmers take years to recover Mm. in your mind. Because when you've been really, really, really cold, I remember the fear as I was about to dive into the sea at the North Pole. I remember the trepidation of doing a swim on Mount Everest. I remember the leopard seals down in South Georgia. I remember each and every one of them. And every single subsequent swim I do, I have to mentally get over all of those before I can even do my swim. So most most sports, the more experience you have, the better you are at it. So if you're a cricketer, the more balls you hit, the better you're going to be. If you're a tennis player, you're Roger Federer. The more you do, the better you're going to be. It's a complete opposite with cold water swimming. The more experience you have, the harder it is. Because you and never it just w- sticks with you. Sticks, sticks. Oh, okay. So I mean, you know, this is all for the good of our globe, for the good of our ocean, and that makes me wonder what sort of radical tactical shifts do we need to be doing to preserve our oceans and the environment? Like, are there two things you would say that we just need to double down on right now? Mm. I think the first thing that I would say is I would ask every single person when you wake up in the morning, and let me just start off by just saying this, this is the defining issue of our generation. Yep. Every single generation is going to face its issues, but the defining issue of our generation is the health of our planet. It's unlike anything we've ever faced before. It is as the Secretary General of the United Nations said, an existential threat to life on Earth, period. So I would ask everybody, when you wake up in the morning, ask yourself a very, very simple question. What am I doing today to help tackle the climate emergency? 
I think the second question I would ask people to ask themselves is this, that every single purchase which we make, whether it be the clothes we wear, the food we eat, how we travel, how we, uh, what we invest, any, any uh, savings that we've got, uh, all these type of things. Um, every single purchase which we make is a decision about our future. It's a yeah. decision about the future of our children and it's a decision about the whole of the animal kingdom. We need to make the right decisions. I think the third thing I would say, sorry, I know you asked for two, but the third one I no, think is really- No, let's, I said keep going. <laughs> I think this third one's really important. I was very, very lucky when, when, when we moved out to South Africa, uh, we moved out to Grahamstown. And near Grahamstown is a national park called the Addo Elephant National Park. And I was a young boy and I remember my parents saying to me, we're going to go to the Addo Elephant National Park. And as a 10-year-old growing up in England, this, this was as exciting as, <laughs> as it gets. And we drove in there and it was thick vegetation. And then suddenly we came around the corner and there was this herd of African elephants. And I am talking as hundreds of them. And there were some then walking behind along the road. There were some walking in front. There were some on the right. There were some on the left. We were surrounded by this herd of elephants. And you could hear the ground vibrating. And I remember in the back of the car with my sister Caroline, we were as quiet as church mice. We didn't even whisper. But the sheer excitement of seeing African wildlife was wonderful. Mm. my love for the environment it didn't grow up in a vacuum it was because my parents uh, I was very lucky my parents took me to national parks w South Africa has a dismal record when it comes to protecting the environment okay I live in South Africa in Cape Town at the moment less than one percent of our ocean is protected the scientists are saying that we need to have at least 30 percent of our oceans protected now for oceans to stand any chance of, of, of recovery. Some nations are doing, are doing really well. So for example, America, um, at least 20% of America's coastline, uh, America's uh, uh, waters are protected, fully protected. And they monitor those waters really well. And the American government, then, uh, President Biden has now committed to protecting 30% of American waters by 2030. They're full steam ahead. It's really exciting, but South Africa hasn't. And you've got to ask yourself, why is that? Mm -hmm. well, well, South Africa is facing lots of, lots of big issues at the moment with the coronavirus, access to education, access to healthcare, uh, equality. Uh, I mean, so many different issues. The ocean seems to be right at the bottom of the, of, of the, uh, of the pile. But I also think it's a question of access. How many of South Africa's leaders have actually been into the ocean, have gone swimming, have a boat and can go and sail along the South African coastline, have scuba dived, have been underwater and have, and have seen the magnificent, magnificence. I mean, South Africa is where three oceans meet, the Indian Ocean, the Southern Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. There's an upwelling of nutrients here. You see humpback whales, you see, uh, you see uh, uh, penguins, beautiful African penguins. You see sharks of every single color. The great whites. Color. Great whites. This 
is megafauna. This is one of the most incredible places and less than 1% is protected. We, we can't protect it unless we take our children and our leaders into the ocean. Because unless you've been into these places, why would you want to protect them? If you you don't, if you don't know about them, see some connection. If you don't see some, if you see don't see any connection. Do you think we need to give up eating fish? I have, and the reason why I have is for for two reasons. First of all, I've been swimming now for thirty five years, and I've seen our oceans literally the fish just being hoovered up. And the second reason is, I've been at lots of autopsies, and have mm-hmm. seen fish and whales and birds being being. Uh, uh, examined by scientists and you just you can't believe how much plastic pollution you see in these fish it is ubiquitous every single part of the world's oceans now has got plastic pollution you go into the north pole and south pole you go you know you go to the top layer you go right down to the seabed and we're seeing plastic pollution. So i've been doing um beach cleanups in india where the plastic pollution at the beginning of these beach cleanups was literally up to the shoulders. I mean, you think about that. It's like a municipal dump on the beach. We bring in bulldozers, we bring in lorries, we bring in trucks, we clean that whole beach and on the weekend and then come the, come the Tuesday and the Wednesday and the ocean has vomited up more and more plastic. Oh. The birds eat the plastic, the fish eat the plastic, the whales eat the plastic. It's a catastrophe and when you eat fish, you are now eating the microplastics. The micro, yeah. Yeah. So not only are we killing the fish. And people are horrified that their fish have microplastics rather than starting at the front of that chain. And Correct. The plastics that we are the ones that are putting there. Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. Well, okay. So I'm interested to know what the difference between motivation and inspiration is to you. I've heard a little bit before, but I thought it would be a, a good thing for my listeners to hear as well. Mm. I think that I may not be right here, but I, I think the distinction between motivation and inspiration is where it comes from. For me, inspiration is from the outside. It's something mm-hmm. which inspires you. Motivation is from the inside. It's something that keeps you going. So, for example, you may, uh, I don't know, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Mahatma Gandhi. You listen to the speeches of, 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 of these people or you listen to people like Christine Tompkins, who's one of the greatest in- environmentalists, or you think of uh, Jane Goodall, the, you know, another great conservationist. You listen to them and you, and you ask yourself, gosh, what, what am I doing with my life? I need, to, I, need, <laughs> I, need, I need to pull up my socks and I need to make my life work. Okay, that's inspiration. It comes from the outside. And it's when you've really been truly inspired, it can be a lifelong experience motivation is something different though motivation is so this morning it's uh, four o'clock i've got to get up i've got to get into the pool and i've got to start my training i've got a big swim coming up toughest swim of my life i better be training motivation is good habits it's making sure i'm at the swimming pool on time i've done my warm-up drills and when i'm doing my swimming i'm making every single uh stroke count and i'm not giving 80 percent or 90 percent, but i'm giving this coach 100% I'm motivated. Now the question you need to ask, Mungi, is is it motivation which you need or is yeah. it inspiration with you which you need? And sometimes I think it's a combination of both. On a Mondays and Tuesdays you need a bit of motivation. At the end of the week and especially on weekends and during your holidays, 
It's a time for inspiration. Inspiration doesn't just come, though, from people. It can come from the environment. For me, when I'm down in Antarctica and I look out across these enormous great ice sheets, I'm on the coastline and I see these huge great emperor penguins or king penguins, and I see the glaciers, and I see God's creation. Mm. I'm inspired. I mean, I was pretty... I thought I was motivated this morning when I did my 8 a.m. workout, but here you are saying you're getting up at 4. I mean, I'm not that motivated. No, okay. Well, what I would say is this. (laughs) (laughs) Is that if you're a writer or a poet or, you know, somebody who's using their thoughts towards the end of the day is sometimes when you get your best, most creative time. If you're an athlete... You need to be up early. You need to be grinding it out. If you're a sprinter, you need to be up and ready. By 8 a.m., you've done your day's work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. That's why I would say maybe I'm more of a writer. There we go. (laughs) Less of an athlete. Well, Lewis, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm going to ask you my two favorite questions. Yep. The first one is, what is your greatest fear for humanity? Mm. Uh, that we don't, that's a very, very simple uh, thing. The science is very, very clear. These next 10 years are absolutely crucial to tackle climate change. It's an opportunity which will not come again. If we don't tackle it now, we are facing complete runaway climate change. And just to give you an idea of how fast it is, when I did my first swim in the Arctic, mm-hmm. uh, I did it on, a, on an island Um, called Spitsbergen, which is very, very close to the North Pole. And the water there was three degrees centigrade. I went back there a couple of years later, and the water was no longer three degrees centigrade. It was now 10 degrees centigrade. Shit. So it had gone from three to 10 in just 12 years. That was the speed at which the change is happening. You have warm water moving up the Atlantic, up against the Arctic ice packs, melting the Arctic ice packs. We have no time to delay. So my biggest fear is that we believe that all these other issues, which are important, that, that they take precedence. So, you know, this fight to, 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 to tackle coronavirus is obviously incredibly important. I get it. My mother died of coronavirus. When you see somebody die of coronavirus, it's, it's heartbreaking. But what we're talking now is we're talking about the health of the whole planet and everything that lives on it. And the science is clear. We need to take the action now. Yeah. What is your greatest hope for humanity? I suppose it's, it's the converse of that. Um, that's, that's what some people say. They're like, well, the opposite of what I just told you. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I remember what Desmond Tutu said in 1990, uh, the announcement was that uh, Nelson Mandela would be, I was in South Africa at the time, and South Africa was coming towards the end of apartheid, but it was still a very, very strong apartheid government and state and military apparatus and police state. Many people were in jail and South Africa was on a incredibly bad trajectory. 
effectively there was a civil war uh, in, in all the townships. And the state president at the time, F.W. de Klerk, stood up in parliament and he said, today, this was in 1990, we are unbanning the ANC, we are re releasing Nelson Mandela, we're releasing the political prisoners, and we're starting a transition. And I remember what Nelson Mandela, I remember what uh, Desmond Tutu said. He said, my breath was taken away. My breath was taken away. I thought that this would be years in the coming. Sometimes, sometimes hope and change is much closer than you think it is. And my hope is that this year, as we run into the big climate change negotiations in Glasgow, mm -hmm. okay, which will determine the fate of all of us, I hope that world leaders come there with that same excitement which we had in South Africa in early 1990 when that announcement was made. Because change can come, and when you've seen change take place, it's just wonderful, and we can change. We can get this world on a proper trajectory. We can protect our planets, and we can ensure that everybody has a sustainable future. We definitely can. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, and best of luck with all this training for your toughest swim. I don't know how they get tougher, but I believe you. Mungi, this one is exponentially tougher than I've ever undertaken. I'm hoping it's going to start on the 11th of August. Please, I'd urge your superb followers to follow it on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. It's going to be the hardest swim of my life and I'm going to give it horns. We, we will follow for sure. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.